So you can see in, in so many different ways the, um, the possibilities of supporting or blocking um, the, the erotic movement, the, the, the movement of soul-making, the process and dynamic of soul-making. And this, as I say, we could say, this is what the soul wants. What do we love about being in love? Uh, we love the love, yeah, sure. But maybe more, maybe more than that, we love the sense of soul-making when we're in love, to echo something we said the other day. We love the sense of the infinite potential, the infinite creation and discovery, creativity and discovering um, with respect to the the beloved other, um, in and with respect to them, in and with respect to the self, to the world, to the eros, to divinity. Eros, if it's allowed to stimulate and open this soul-making dynamic, the eros psychologos dynamic, the bigger meaning of eros. Eros opens, it opens things up. And, and, and that opening is what is soul-making. And we love that. So part of that opening, um, too, is, um, I mentioned this before, um, it, it is... It opens up the very sense of existence, the very uh, way we see and sense and conceive of existence. Eros, if you remember from um, Plato's definition, uh, or Plato's depiction, really, not definition, um, Eros was a hermeneutic daimon, meaning he's some kind of demigod um, that has to do with interpretation, with hermeneutics, interpretation of everything. Everything. So whatever Eros comes into contact with, whatever it flows towards, um, wherever there's erotic connection, there's a fertility and an opening up um, of the hermeneutics there, the interpretation of this facet, this thread, this, this um, aspect of existence, the self, the other, the world there, the Eros itself. So Eros, if you like, opens for us the, the, the gates into the garden of infinite interpretation. To borrow a phrase I used on the, on the um, re-enchanting retreat. The garden of infinite interpretation. Eros is what takes us in there. So again, um, I like to draw on um, some Kabbalistic teaching. And so most Kabbalists... Um, both with respect, with respect to um, scripture, sacred scripture, but also with, with um, also uh, in relation to uh, the world. Um, so both with scripture and both any aspect of existence um, held almost axiomatically that it's potentially um, is subject to potentially infinite an infinite variety of, of perspectives and interpretations. Not just sacred scripture, but um, the world and others and all that. So it's, it's very similar to what we're saying here. And uh, some some of these um, teachings uh, about multiple interpretation in Kabbalah I got from uh, this writer that I enjoy, Sanford Drob. <coughs> and uh, he describes one Kabbalist, uh, Moses Chaim Rosato, Rabbi Moses Chaim Rosato, uh, lived in... Padua, I think, in Italy, in uh, the 
early 18th century, I believe. And he's talking about um, comparing the multiplicity of meanings um, in and of the Torah, the, the, um, the basically the Old Testament, um, a multiplicity of meanings in and of that, uh, comparing that to like the many nuances of, of the flames from a hot coal. So the flame from a hot coal flickers this and has different colours in it at different times. You suddenly get goes green or blue and um, and, uh, and and moves, shapes and grows and uh, uh, diminishes, etc. So all these multiple flickering nuances is somewhat similar to the multiplicity of meanings of uh, the basic text. It's not taken uh, one-dimensionally or uni- you know, in, in a kind of narrow literalistic sense at all. So this uh, Rabbi Moses Chaim Lozato said um, of, of this, of the Torah, <coughs> um, whose words and letters are like coals, he said, and whoever is preoccupied and busy with it, in other words, whoever has that erotic connection with it, that um, arousal of interest that we talked about, that um, connection there, whoever is preoccupied and busy with it inflames the coals, and from each and every letter a great flame emerges, replete with many nuances, which are the information encoded in this letter. This is the reason why though the Torah as a whole is infinite, even one of its letters is also infinite. <clears throat> but it is necessary, he says, it is necessary to inflame it, and then it will be inflamed, and so too the intellect of the human being. So again, we get the um, uh, image that I was using before, and I think it might even be a classic one, of Eros as a flame. Actually, I'm making the connection with Eros there. Um, but Eros as a flame. Um, and when there's that erotic connection, just as um, he, he was describing there without the language of Eros, um, but we could say something similar happens to whatever there is this erotic connection um, uh, with. And Eros, as a flame, it needs something to burn. Um, it needs the fuel of what? Of, of the beloved other as psyche and logos. The psyche and the logos are the fuel. Um, and actually then the flame too, if we follow the analogy, it sort of mixes because the, the psyche and the logos are what is then perceived of the thing and uh, that becomes uh, the flame that we behold if you translate it back to his image. But again, that really reflects the fact that eros, psyche, logos are not separate. <coughs> Oregon wrote... Uh, we enlarge our soul, which was previously contracted, in order to be capable of receiving the wisdom of God. We enlarge our soul, which was previously contracted, in order to be capable of receiving the wisdom of God, or if you prefer, the, the jnana, the gnosis of Buddha nature, the jnana of Buddha nature. This is what soul-making um, wants and ties us into. There's an opening here that's possible. Enlarging our soul, enlarging that eros-psychologos dynamic, which was previously contracted, in order to be capable of receiving the wisdom of God. What is the wisdom of God? What is this jnana of Buddha nature, if we put it in Buddhist language? 
It's the seeing of the divine and the ideation, um, the creativity of ideation, the conceptuality and, and the seeing of emptiness, all that together is the jnana of Buddha nature, the wisdom of God. Whose psyche, logos, eros is this? Who does it belong to? Where does this movement of soul-making have its root, its origin? Where does it come from? Who does it belong to? Is it mine? Is it yours? We enlarge our soul, which was previously contracted, in order to be capable of receiving the wisdom of God, the jnana of Buddha nature. When there is no imaginal dimension, um, the initial impetus of Eros for more will, will just get diverted into greed, unless what we practice is, is, a, is a, uh, a lessening of fabrication through some way of looking at the self, of the object, or whatever. But without the imaginal dimension, the eros gets diverted into greed, and you can see this, you know, not just in relationship with um, uh, with, with another human being or uh, you know partner or lover or whatever, um, but you see it in in relation to nature or land or beautiful places. Um, if there's only one dimension there, if this beautiful nature that I'm beholding, this landscape or whatever it is, doesn't allow um, an opening of dimensionality, doesn't um, have within it this dimensionality that the eros, that the wanting more can move into, then what happens? I say, I like this. Where will I go next year? Um, And I'll fly off here or there and travel and I'll collect places at great expense to the environment, perhaps. It has to go, again, it's forced into the horizontal, because there is no vertical. It's just matter. It's pretty. Nice, pleasing colors, uh, whatever it is. Nice sunset. Um, but it's forced into... The, in, in, it only it can occupy one dimension, because that's all um, that is seen in it, is a one-dimensionality. The more has to go into a horizontal movement has to move, I can only get more horizontally. In other words, more of this elsewhere, because I've exhausted this in front of me. Because there's not more verticality, more depth, more dimensionality um, to move into. And, and there's not an inexhaustible mystery there to move into. So I need to go somewhere else. The vertical is discounted or blocked or simply not available. And um, <clears throat> it's interesting, you know, in relation to this, there's something actually in concrete, physical, in the life that is not, uh, the perception of it is not allowed or prevented from opening up. But conversely, you know, even um, something, an image from 
purely from meditation, can actually, as we've seen, open up a cosmopoesis regarding nature, and, and often does with the erotic imaginal. Um, and so nature, wherever we are, is seen to have this depth, and it's come from the eros and the imaginal uh, dimensions of the meditation, even before we looked at that nature. So I don't need to travel to get more. Um, and uh, to, to give you an example of one, one of the ways this worked, I had a dream, um, this is a few years ago, and I dreamed, I dreamt of, um, there was a kind of big arched wooden door, and um, somehow inlaid in the door were kind of um, carvings and sort of ornate um, abstract uh, shapes, um, and in the wood and in the stone arch that um, was sort of um, carved around it, shaped around the door. And the dream was just of the door, and there was organ music coming um, very, very loudly from the inside. And something about this moved me to tears. Um, it was, it was really the beauty of the door. Um, there was something luminous, yes, but numinous. Something divine. I couldn't even put my finger on it. Um, and and wonderfully deep. There was this sense of depth that I couldn't uh, articulate um, that was um, you know pregnant with beauty and full full of beauty um, something that was very hard to describe but even kind of pinpoint um, what what that depth was it wasn't at all obvious at first and and with the music as well um, there were a few young men around in the dream um, a little further away from the door and um, for some reason, they're, they're mocking me. I don't know why. Um, so, I had that dream, and then um, in the meditation in the morning, I, I revisited it. It seemed there was so much beauty and depth there that I took it up as an imaginal med- meditation. Um, Again, uh, interesting, I just mentioned this as a matter of technique. It was hard to connect at first and to bring it alive, but again, I um, played with something which I'm not sure how um, unique to me it is. It might just be a personal quirk of mine, or or it might be something that's more um, (coughs) universally applicable. Um, But I played with that sort of floating energy body, turning cartwheel sense of the subtle body that I mentioned the other day. And then that helped, that numinosity and beauty um, and connection with this image of the door and the sense of sacredness and praise, it helped it all to arise, became really um, almost just as, just as vital and just as beautiful, just as moving. Uh, and uh, and really not separate from me. There was something very... Uh, beautifully connected there. Um, then I, I float, floated, uh, you know, there was still this energy body sense, so I floated in the image, um, and I, rather than make the door open, I sort of let it open, and inside um, was kind of a rainforest, a bright um, orb of light like the sun, And um, but there don't seem to be any walls there or borders it's just 
this forest and, and bright light and such a sense of beauty and reverence um, and looking up somehow at the same time looking up um, uh, there was there were stars there uh, and and more music uh, I, I could I'm aware in the image I could sort of travel into this landscape and kind of go on a bit of a journey but I, I decide not to um, for that reason about the difference that I pointed out between narrative images moving through a lot of space a sort of shamanic journey versus actually a, a kind of image that's sufficient to itself so the depth there remains um, a little bit yeah, pregnant not yet fully explored um, I'm mentioning that partly because partly because it's a in, in, at one level, it's sort of like, well, nothing much happened, or it's certainly not sexually erotic. But there, um, and so, in one level, it sounds like not that big a deal. But it, um, as as a dream and as an image, but it was a tremendously touching for me, and b um, there is eros there, right? There's this sense of attraction, beauty, dimensionality, divinity, um, and in that attraction, in that in in the way that it stirs the soul, there's all the elements of soul making there. And the reason I'm mentioning it now as well is because um, as I move through the day, and I think I was even working that day, and um, that that I, you know, periodically just recalled the the, the vision, the image um, during the day at different times, and noticed the cosmopoesis that came from it. So it was a vision of nature in this case, not of some sexual thing, but a vision of nature and a whole relationship with nature, with this rainforest and the beauty there and the, the door opening into something um, that uh, actually spilled over into a real sacredness um, of cosmopoesis in, in relation to what, whatever was around me um, uh, that, that, you know, was re- redolent of that image, characteristic of that image. So again, uh, coming out of the, the eros and the imaginal, in this case, originating not even with um, actual physical nature, there's a sense of the relationship with nature being um, open, transformed, deepened, um, so that there isn't a need to necessarily go here or there, see see this or that place necessarily. Because the more in the Eros can go, it can get infinitely satisfied in the infinite depth that can open up there. doesn't need, as I say, it's not constrained to the horizontal. It's right here. I don't need to go elsewhere on this same flat horizontal level. It's infinite right here. Infinite in depth, infinite in possibility. <clears throat> so we can see this in all kinds of ways. As I said, um, also again, not non-sexual, um, with respect to someone who's not a lover, um, but an actual person or a thing in our life or uh, something. So, for example, the fantasy of a teacher. Um, <coughs> and again, I'm using fantasy in in a 
good sense, uh, in a creative soul-making sense, there is fantasy and image. When the teacher-student relationship, um, even when they don't know each other, um, you know, they've never met in person, when that is potent and deep and fertile, when there, there is eros there, and there's a fantasy of, of the teacher, or fantasies and images of that teacher, in the best sense, in the imaginal sense, but then what can happen is, again, if we're talking about how this process gets blocked or limited, either, for example, um, my soul-making process of the Eros-Psyche-Logos dynamic in its expansion, um, it reaches, if you like, the limit of what the teacher is presenting. So the image that the way they are or the way they uh, behave or act or um, comport themselves or... Um, uh, dress or speak or whatever it is, um, it's n- it n- can no longer uh, meet the expansion that's happening in uh, in my soul making process eros- of the eros dynamic, and we need or want we need more. We need a larger, wider image, some someone that can um, give us that. Um, or hold that, if you like, in their being, or um, a deeper, wider logos than this teacher is is presenting and communicating or teaching. You understand? So something in your soul making, my soul making logos, soul soul making movement in relation to this t- fantasy, this teacher, it reaches the limit of what they can hold um, <clears throat> or what they're presentation of themselves can hold and of their teachings can hold and and the soul needs something more or what can happen um, and then the eros goes out of that relationship and oftentimes the power of the teaching goes out of that relationship the soul making goes out of that relationship or what can happen is um, my um, fantasy or image of them or of what awakening is changes. So I'm talking about spiritual teachers now. Um, the uh, for some reason my my fantasy just changes of them, my image of them, or my whole fantasy image or logos of what awakening is. And again, they can't. Um, <clears throat> it, it shifts. The eros can no longer flow there for what the soul making needs. So there's a diminishing of the eros, or the eros means that I, I move elsewhere for something that can support that psyche and logos. I can't remember, I think I've shared in <coughs> other talks in the past, I, I don't remember, but um, you know, I, I lived as a musician for um, some, quite some years and um, in, the, in, in the US and um, uh, twice dur- during those years at different times um, uh, there were periods where the whole sort of soul-making relationship with music and with making music and writing music and playing music, um, it just kind of collapsed. It, it collapsed to a kind of one-dimensionality. So everything that music sort of was so full of, so expressive, so resonant uh, of other dimensions of existence and meaningfulness, etc., it just in different ways at different times, uh, once for a very short period, once for a little longer, um, it just kind of um, collapsed to just like, yeah, why all this fuss about 
sounds in certain relationships. Um, it, it lost its magic, if you like. It lost its image. Those words are, I'm not sure, but they may well be related, magic and image. It lost all its imaginal dimensions, its meaningfulness, its soul resonances. Um, and, and the erotic relationship with making music and um, improvising or writing m- music was just uh, gone. It came back. You know, there were certain things that actually um, <coughs> helped that to, to break, if you like, and certain things that allowed, allowed a new level of fantasy to come back. Actually, if we go back to the whole um, fantasy of a teacher thing, you know, in some traditions, for instance, some of the Tibetan lineages, the teacher, the guru, the lama, um, is the instruction is, excuse me, regard your lama as the Buddha. And, uh, you know, it's hard to say how many people actually take that literally, like they really are the Buddha. There's something there that they are the reincarnation of a Buddha or um, something very close to a Buddha. Um, it, it might be taken very literally um, or not. You know, and I don't know, and there's probably a, a real ver- variety in that, how, ma- how literally people take this, your lama, your guru is the Buddha um, teaching. <coughs> um, for me, it's exactly this kind of literalism or realism, whether it's religious in, in the narrow sense or whether it's secular, um, the, it's the realism that's a little silly. So what we're trying to open up here is something, a kind of middle way, that um, it's not a realism, but and a shrinking literalism and kind of concretization there um, that would be, it would strike me as re- really a bit, silly um, but uh, in but it's <clears throat> but it's also not a kind of dismissal and a refusal to admit other dimensions and um, something about the nature of perception and ways of looking and soul making and eros uh, that dismisses all that and just goes to a kind of realism of another level shrinking to that one dimension for instance Something, if you like, in between, which isn't some sort of happy compromise. It's something that's at a different level of of understanding, of concept, of engagement, of wisdom, I would say. So there's the difference between an idol and actually believing this thing or this person um, is really... um, divine, uh, in, in a kind of very concretized, uh, limited and reified way, uh, and then it somehow encapsulates the totality, uh, or it is the totality of what divinity is. There's a difference between an idol and an icon, and here's again borrowing from uh, Henri Corbin and also uh, Jean-Luc Marion, a French, uh, postmodern French philosopher and theologian. An icon is more, admits of this open-endedness, admits of dimensions of unfathomability, dimensions of divinity that will always exceed um, whatever is in front of us, always bigger than the actual perception. Um, But somehow this thing, 
or this beloved other or this object or whatever it is functions as a kind of um, portal, if you like, to that um, infinity of infinities, to that um, dimensionality and divinity. But it's without kind of naive realism, and it's not a, it's not uh, it's without limitation as well. So you can get icons and idols um, in relation to images, of course, um, but you can also get them in relation to ideas. So an idea can become, or a conceptual framework, or a logos can become an idol. becomes, again, limited, and we say, this is the truth, this is real, this is true. Um, or it can become something that's held in a different way not rarefied, not taken with a truth claim, and not limited. It becomes more potentially open, expansive, expanding. We'll return to this in relation to ideation. <clears throat> but in a nutshell, it's not inflation that's a problem, if you know this word from Jungian um, psychology, or, or at least uh, not how it sounds, that's the problem. This expansion of the eros-psychologous dynamic, this expansion of the imaginal, etc., and the ideation, um, that's not what he actually meant by inflation, but it's not the expansion per se that's the problem, it's the reification and the identification that's the problem. Reification and identification are the problems, not this expansion, not the inflation. Because where there's reification and identification, there is not the imaginal. It's not image, as we're using it. Now, last thing. Sometimes, and in some relationships, most of the time, perhaps all the time, sometimes and in some relationships, it's not acting on the eros um, that actually stimulates. It's the... um, containment of the eros, um, preventing it from spilling out in in certain ways into actuality, um, that actually allows the um, increase of the psyche, the growth, the expansion of soul-making, of image, of logos. It's the not acting. So what, what, what happens by kind of creating a space that... Um, that is free of um, manifest action, um, we create a kind of... That that space becomes a a kind of alchemical vessel and a a crucible, if you like. The fire or the heat of Eros accumulates in that space where there isn't the possibility to act on the Eros in the most sort of... um, immediate or obvious or one-dimensional way. And this crucible and the, the, the vessel and the heat, the fire of, um, heating that vessel, the fire of Eros heating that vessel, um, heats and stimulates and galvanizes, catalyzes the soul-making process. There's alchemy here. Um, we cannot uh, or we refuse to get our more, the more that Eros wants, on the horizontal material level in this relationship with whoever it is. And therefore the more is, if you like, forced or funneled, as I said, um, to uh, to 
other dimensions, to open other dimensions, to discover, to create other dimensions. Because it can't, it's, it's kept out of this area, of this dimension. Um, so it must find uh, the pressure to create, to find more, and it will find it at, at other levels, and create those, and discover and open those other imaginal dimensions. So for example, um, uh, non-consummation sexually, in a relationship, um, a certain relationship, or on the physical plane of um, manifesting, you know, being friends and hanging out or whatever it is. Um, the kinds of boundaries that often exist <coughs> um, and sometimes are stringently reinforced between a uh, psychotherapist, say, and a client, or a teacher and a student, um, uh, rather than seeing this as then, ah yes, the reason for those boundaries is so that you can re-experience the Oedipal triangle and the frustration of not being able to get the um, mother, etc., as that's projected onto the therapist or whatever it is, or the teacher, um, which again, mostly um, is a kind of psychological reductionist view of what's happening there. And so by reliving that, you're reliving the Oedipal um, trauma, if you like, or pain, and you can um, find a healthier way to navigate that and to confront it and to um, accommodate it, etc. Rather than that kind of psychological reductionist view, um, actually, what if we see those kind of boundaries and necessity of them as a kind of alchemical vessel? They're creating... Um, uh, an alchemy of soul-making is possible through the containment of the eros. Through this space, a uh, sacred space, if you like, uh, temenos is the Greek word for a sacred space, I think. So, through the non-acting at that, at that level, um, sometimes, in some relationships, a temenos is created um, of soul-making for soul-making. It's not for letting go and um, diminishing one's desires or letting go of craving in one's life or renouncing eros or trying to you know, um, uh, let go of sex sexual desire or anything like that. That's not the purpose in our view or in, in this way that we're talking about now. It's for the sake of soul-making. This space... Um, this boundary, this temenos, is for the sake of soul-making. So the erotic tension is preserved, the fire is um, contained, and so heats up more, doesn't disperse. The erotic tension is preserved because the two doesn't collapse to a one in union. We'll actually, we'll come back to that, that piece. So this um, boundary or containment, if you like, um, I'm not talking now about kind of uh, preservation um, or containing of the sexual energy, for example, um, in certain um, sexual yogas, ancient and modern, um, that where, for instance, the man doesn't ejaculate um, so the energy is contained and rechanneled so that it opens bliss or opens certain energy centers and so that there can be a melting, the consciousness melts into oneness and that sort of thing. Um, not talking about that, that's all valid and good and fine and 
can be helpful and important. But actually, it's not for that, this kind of temenos that I'm talking about. It's for, it's for the sake of the fertilization of the imaginal, for the sake of the, of the, the increase of soul-making, the support of soul-making, the vessel of, of soul-making. You understand? It's different. The imaginal is involved. <clears throat> Just finish with a quote um, from William James. I'm not sure exactly, the psychologist and philosopher, I'm not sure exactly where, where it came from, but um, I'm not quite sure what the scope of his intent and meaning was, but you can maybe hear it from the perspective now of everything that we've said. Um, so he wrote about... Um, the fantastic and unnecessary character of a man's wants. Uh, Just keep his uh, gender-biased language for now. But um, wrote about the fantastic and unnecessary character of a man's wants. And he said, even when there, the wants gratification, even when the gratification of the wants seems farthest off, the uneasiness they occasion is still the best guide of his life and will lead him to issues entirely beyond his present powers of reckoning. Prune down his extravagance, sober him, and you undo him. Prune down his extravagance, sober him, and you undo him. So there's something in this, um, what he calls the fantastic and unnecessary character of the Eros. Um, uh, it, it, it does give rise to a kind of uneasiness, unsettleness. Why? Because it's dynamic and because it grows things. And, and if we let it expand in the way that it naturally, organically wants to, it will um, be the best guide of his life, will lead him to issues entirely beyond his present powers of reckoning, will, as I said, open up insights, open up the sense of existence, all of that. Prune down his extravagance, sober him, and you undo him. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.